amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Today I want to share and give you the most precious thing that I have, my testimony of life with Jesus Christ and God. As you can see, I'm old, older than dirt. <laughs> I've trusted God for 63 years, and in those 63 years, I've had three spiritual epiphanies. And you know what an epiphany is, I'm sure. It's, it's a paradigm shift. It's a time when, in an instant, you, you suddenly see things much differently. It's a spiritual, aha! These were moments when I suddenly understood God much better and how I should relate to him much better and much differently than before. And the cumulative effect on my life today is that I usually find myself filled with love, joy, peace, and the other fruit of the Spirit. Growing up, I really never thought about God very much. We were a nominally Christian family that might go to church two, three times a year, usually at Christmas and Easter. My parents were really very loving, good, moral people who supported and loved me. But they had both had negative experiences with church when they were young, and therefore they just kind of kept their distance from it. I was always <clears throat> the older brother growing up. You know, the kid who was generally obedient, the kid who was a good student and never really gave their parents much grief. I never really saw myself as a terrible sinner because most of the time I tried to do what was right. Not always, you understand, but most of the time. In high school, though, I had two close Christian friends who regularly talked to me about Jesus and about how important it was to have faith in him and a relationship with God. And I took this with several grains of salt for a long time until one day, one evening actually in the winter of 1960 when I was 16 years old. And that night, my friend Kelly Mink convinced me to go to a, with him to a revival meeting at Lee Heights Baptist Church. Lee Heights is a small country church, uh, and the revival was being led by the pastor. He was the kind of a preacher that I usually don't care for. A lay pastor who, not very well educated, and also a shouter and a spitter. <laughs> I don't remember the sermon at all. But afterward, Kelly and I went outside, and there was this huge oak tree in front of the church, and under that oak tree, I began to pray. In that moment, I, heard, I literally heard the voice of God say in my ear, I want you, but you need me. And I was suddenly profoundly aware of my separation from him, and of what Christ Jesus had done 
to make it possible for me to return. Now, even though my hair was standing on end, it really I wasn't what I'd call a, a hugely emotional moment. It was just a total shift of how I saw the world. This was my first aha moment with God. And since then, my spiritual growth has been by fits and starts, generally on the upward path, but a closer walk with him. As a college freshman, uh, I became close to the pastor of the University Baptist Church, which is just off the campus of LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But that year, late in the year, the church had an ugly split and they fired the pastor in a way that was very unkind. And so I just kind of backed away from church for the rest of my college life. Carolyn and I, my first wife, were <clears throat> dating pretty heavily at that time anyway, and I was hitchhiking home from Baton Rouge to Alexandria every weekend to see her. And frankly, a kiss sounded sweeter to me than a sermon at that time anyway. After marriage and graduation, we moved due to my work seven times in six years. And so we really just never had time to feel like we wanted to join and get close to a church. But moving to Tulsa finally in 1972, I went to work for a small oil company. It only had one office. There was no place they could move me. And so we began attending Parkview Baptist Church just up the street from here. After finishing a six weeks new members class, the pastor, Dr. Eddie Hatfield, said, I want you to teach the college and career class. I, who had never really read the Bible much, never studied it at all. Naively, I said, oh, okay. And I did. I studied the Bible hard after that, so I wouldn't appear totally stupid in class. And that led to 40 years of adult Bible teaching. In the first 20 years, I would, was what I would call a head Christian. The most important thing to me was to truly understand the mind of God and what he wanted from me. In 1991, I became convinced that I couldn't both follow God the way he expected and chase money as the president of Samson Resources Company, which by that time had become one of the largest independent oil companies in the U.S. And so I sold my interest back to the principal of the company and I retired. But I was 47 years old and I needed something to do. And so a couple of years later, Parkview started an annual mission trip to Venezuela, which I went on, and wound up for the next 20 years uh, doing the logistics for all of those trips. And that led to my second aha moment with God. In Venezuela, I became friends with many pastors and church leaders, and I felt that I really understood God's desire and will more than many of them did. But what I came to see there was that they loved God more than I did. And it became apparent to me that suddenly I knew this is what God really wanted for me. He wanted my love, not really my understanding of him. 
it wasn't about knowing the mind of God. It was really about loving him. You know, actually, I was really pretty full of myself to think I could ever understand the mind of God. That's just ridiculous. But I could certainly love him. In 2013, Carolyn, my wife of 47 years, died from ovarian cancer. And that year, I went to Venezuela three times for several weeks at a time. And during one trip back home, I heard a sermon that led to my third spiritual epiphany. And it was called, Give God Your Blank Check Every Day. During that sermon, I realized that even though I went to church nearly every time the doors opened, even though I gave quite a bit more than a tithe, there were still many of my areas of my life that I was withholding from God. I needed to wake up every day ready to do whatever God told me to do. I needed to wake up every day ready to go wherever God wanted me to go. And I needed to wake up every day ready to give whatever he told me to give that day. I needed to give him my whole life, not just the easy parts. The easy parts are easy. And since then, I've tried to do that. Not always succeeding, you understand, but trying. Life is sometimes painful for each of us. Mine has included seven years of caregiving during Carolyn's cancer fight before she died, taking care of parents and mother-in-law and other family members during prolonged illnesses and injuries prior to their death. It also included his serving as legal guardian for a mentally ill family member for 30 years and 18 months of severe depression that God miraculously ended in Venezuela during a church service in two minutes. Financial problems also. Life on God's potter's wheel is often painful. But if I expect Jesus to cover all my sins with his life, I need to let him shape all of my life my very existence. I need to let him live in me and through me every minute of every day. Life is to be lived for God's glory, not for my entertainment or pleasure or comfort. God needs to have absolute priority in my life. Above my family, above my job or my retirement account balance, above my power over other people, above my political beliefs, or even, if I'm a sports fan, above my love of sports, or if I'm a grandparent, above my love of my grandchildren. In my life today, this is playing out by God using all he has taught me to carry out South Tulsa Baptist Churches ministry in Venezuela. First, though, he brought me an amazing new wife, Gaudi. And along with her, 
And by the way, before I got married, I swore after Carolyn died I would never get married again. This was totally a God thing. I wasn't looking for it. And along with Gaudi, I gained two wonderful new children, nine perfect grandchildren, giving us 18 in all, and more love and joy than I've ever felt in my life. God is truly wonderful. And these days, we spend 50 to 70 hours a week looking for, packing, and sending tons of medicine and other needed stuff to Venezuela churches. And God is using this to bring literally tens of thousands of people to saving grace in Christ. It's absolutely awesome to watch what God will do in your life when you give him everything, when you surrender everything. It's amazing. And so this is what I've learned in my 79 years. God will overlook all my sins and departures from his ways if I repent and faithfully accept the gift of Christ's life covering mine every day. God loves me and wants me to love him unconditionally even when the times make that seem impossible. Thanks to God's infinite grace, a life filled with love, joy, peace, and all the other fruit of the Spirit awaits each one of us. We just need to give all of our life away to Him. God wants all of me. God wants all of each one of you. Would you give Him that today? Thank you so much, Alan, for sharing your heart with us today. Let's stand together. And Amber's going to come this morning and read our scripture as we continue in our good news series today in 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17.
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning you heard from Alan. You heard his testimony, his faith story. And what Paul does here in 1 Timothy 1 is give us a little snapshot of his own testimony and faith story. He talks about how God had been so faithful to him in the past, the present, and and God's goals for the future. And in these short verses where Paul is ultimately introducing this letter that would be, be read to the church at Ephesus through the young pastor Timothy, Paul gives us a a glimpse, a reminder of what Christ had done for him personally. And then he finishes it off with that powerful word in verse 17 that talks about the things of God that are not just past, present, and future, but that are always, that have always been true. Paul is saying here, this is how Christ changed the direction of my life. This is how he is alive and at work in me even now. And part of his testimony, again, is this is what I believe to be true about Christ that has always been true, and I believe it with all my heart. This is a part of Paul's testimony. Today, before we're done, I'm going to ask you a couple of times, what is your testimony? Today, what is your testimony about Christ? Who is he to you? What has he done for you? And can you also say, just as Paul says here, that Christ is the Lord of your life? Paul begins in verse 12 by talking not about the past, but about the present. He says, this is who I am right now. And this is what I'm doing as I write this letter to you, Timothy. I am appointed to his service. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who, by the way, is the only one who is worthy of that title, Lord. He says, I I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he has given me the strength to do that which I'm doing. He has considered me trustworthy according to his divine will and purposes and wisdom. Paul says, he has considered me trustworthy and he is the one who has appointed me to the kingdom service in which I am active now. He's the one who called me and appointed me to this service to his kingdom and the church which I've been leading all these many years. You know, I was 15 years old when I knew without question that God was calling me into vocational ministry service. I was about 12 or 13 when I surrendered my life to Christ. And I had seen some other people do this too, that they had said, and also I believe that God is calling me. There's a call on my life to vocational ministry. I didn't know exactly what that was, but when I was 15, it happened to me, and I knew without a doubt that God was telling me, not only do I want all of your life, but I want you to set aside your career goals, your vocational goals, every plan that you have for the future. I now want you to surrender that in service to the church. I had that vocational call to ministry on my life. And there are others in this room who you have had that call and you just know what it's like because it happened to you. But listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you also have been appointed to his service. You also have a call on your life. Yours might not be to serve vocationally in the church, but if you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus you too have been appointed to service in his kingdom and to the church. And wherever the Lord plants you, wherever the Lord sends you, there you are to serve him. It doesn't just have to be on a church staff, right? 
you have a call on your life simply by nature of the fact that you are a follower of Jesus and he has appointed you to his service as well. I was so fortunate to grow up in a church where once I've, I received that call on my life, I had a pastor who I didn't know at the time would become my father-in-law, but I had a pastor and I had a student pastor who helped to cultivate and nurture that call in my life. And I'm sharing that with you in part because 1 Timothy 1.12 was our verse. For all of us who felt called into ministry in that season of life, this was our verse. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, who has considered me trustworthy, who's appointed me to his service. And Paul had that understanding in, in that present moment that the only reason he was who he was and he was where he was was because Christ had called him, Christ had appointed him, and he had surrendered himself to him. You heard Natalie say in her faith story last week, she said, I've been seeking God in new ways this year, but I've come to realize that God is seeking me far more than I have ever sought him. Paul seems to say the same thing time and again in the New Testament. It's not so much that he had chosen Christ, but Christ had chosen him, and then he surrendered to that call. And he was eternally grateful that God had appointed him to his service. But not only that, he says, it's only through Christ's strength that I can do anything good for him. I'm not doing this on my own strength. I'm not doing this through my own intelligence or power or will because of my great education or my great experience or my great success. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, as you heard earlier in this service, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in me. So that Paul would say, there's no way I could do this on my own without the power of Christ because I can't manufacture the power that raised Christ from the dead. But that same power is alive and at work in me and through his strength because he considered me trustworthy, he appointed me to his service. I am doing the kingdom work, the work of the church that Christ has called me to. But you know, another word that Paul often uses throughout the New Testament to talk about what Christ had done in his life was the word mercy. And as Paul turns in verse 13 from the present to the past, he uses that word mercy. He talks about the person that he used to be before he surrendered his life to Christ, before that, that turning point happened where everything was different and Paul stopped walking down the path he was going. He surrendered and he, he began through that, that change and transformation that only Christ brings about to begin following Jesus as his Savior, as his Messiah, as his Lord. But he says, let me tell you, before that moment came, I was a blasphemer. I spoke evil words that weren't words of truth. I was a persecutor. I persecuted those who were following Christ before me. And I was a violent man. In fact, one of the words that Paul uses when he's describing his past is a word that will sound familiar it's the greek word hubristes hubristes it's where we get our english word hubris and so paul ultimately is saying at, at the root of of what was the greatest obstacle for me surrendering my life to christ was my own pride the greatest obstacle for me actually surrendering and giving my all to christ was my own pride and guess what that is still the most common obstacle today that prevents people from giving 
their all, surrendering their all to Jesus. As Alan said, signing that blank check and saying, here it is, God, this is all of me. It's pride so often that stands in our way. And listen, brother and sister in Christ, it's also often our pride that stands in the way of people surrendering their lives to Christ. Because because of our pride and our attitudes, people get turned away, turned off from the good news of the message of Christ because somewhere along the way, though maybe we surrendered our lives at some point, we forgot about that. And we forgot that it wasn't about us. And we fall back into that temptation to make it all about us. And our pride becomes an obstacle for others. Look at what Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. And Paul's not using his ignorance and unbelief as an excuse. In fact, Paul, of of any person we probably find in the New Testament, would have had the reason to be the most prideful. Because when he tells us about his backstory, back in those days when he went by Saul instead of Paul, he says, I was a, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew among Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was highly educated. I was incredibly wealthy. I was a Roman citizen. People came to me when they wanted to know the answers. And Paul's reputation before he surrendered to Christ when he was Saul was one that that had climbed the ladder of earthly success and he was at the top. And yet Paul says, even in those moments when people look to me as the height of success, the height of religion, the height of faith, I was ignorant and I was living in unbelief. How was Paul ignorant? Even though he was highly educated, he had lots of experience and success, and he knew the scriptures as good as anyone, he did not know Christ. And so he says, how I was ignorant is that I knew a lot of stuff, but I didn't know who Christ truly is. I did not believe in him as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord. In other words, Paul says, I was lost. I appeared to be the one who had all the answers and had it all figured out, but the truth is, I was lost. And Paul knew, as he's writing here, that the only answer to being lost spiritually is to realize that you can't find your way on your own. You cannot find your way out of spiritual lostness on your own because only Christ is the way to move from lostness to salvation. Only Christ is the way from death into life. Only Jesus Christ truly is the light of the world. And if we don't follow the path that he enlightens for us, we cannot find our way out of the darkness and the lostness without him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul says, I acted out of ignorance and unbelief because I didn't know Christ. And by the way, if you want to read more of Paul's story, He only tells us a little bit, but if you want to read more of that transformation moment, go home and read Acts 9 today, where where Acts 9 tells us in detail what this looked like when Paul met Christ and surrendered his life to him. Paul had that experience, and he says, though I acted in ignorance and, and unbelief, and out of my hubris and out of my pride, look at verse 14, the grace, so we had mercy, now we have grace. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, and not just a little bit, poured out on me abundantly. In fact, the way this this language makes us picture it is the, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me, and he just kept on pouring it out to the point that it was overflowing. 
And even though I was a violent man, a persecutor, a blasphemer, he showed me mercy, he showed me grace. And when we hear the word grace, we should always think undeserved, right? He showed me undeserved grace, and he didn't just pour it out on me a little. It is overflowing in my life. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has been poured out on me abundantly. How many of you today would say that that is the testimony of your life, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has been poured out on you abundantly? I think you'd be a little more excited about it than that. How many of you would say that? Abundantly, to a measure that I can never even describe, Paul says. I received God's mercy and grace, and along with it came faith. I no longer lived in ignorance and unbelief. And along with it came the love that is in Christ Jesus. So for me, it, wasn't, it was no longer just about what I knew or what I had accomplished, but it was about what Christ was producing in me, faith and love. I love the way one ancient Christian said it. He said, Paul was changed from a persecutor into a preacher and a teacher of the nations. And Paul knew that it was only because of Christ's strength that he could do those things. Then in verse 15, Paul says, as he says in a few other letters, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And the first part of this is a timeless truth. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ came to the world to save sinners. And then I love how Paul believed that the second part of the statement was just as true as the first. And he says, and by the way, of whom I am the worst. This is a timeless truth. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In other words, if God's grace and mercy could be revealed in a person like me, Paul says it can happen to anyone. That's why Christ came. I hear echoes of what we read last week from Mark and from Luke, where Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call those who are self-righteous, who are confident in their own righteousness. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And this was the story of Paul's transformation. He went from the the self-righteous Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, to one who acknowledged that he was a sinner in need of grace. And he came to Christ the same way each and every one of us are called to come to him, through repentance in his own life. Admitting he was wrong, doing something that is almost never done today, admitting that he was wrong, that he acted in ignorance and unbelief, and surrendering his life to Jesus Christ. I love the way St. Augustine said it. He said, there was no reason for Christ the Lord to come except to save sinners, eliminate diseases, eliminate wounds, And there is no call for medicine. But if a great doctor has come down from heaven, a helpless patient must have been lying very sick throughout the whole wide world. And this helpless patient is the whole human race. And as Paul says, here is a a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came for the good of that helpless patient. He came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And Paul doesn't dwell on the past. But then he he points to the future and he says, because Christ has done this for me, for the, the very reason that I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, 
there might be an example for others who might say something like well if the grace of god could save someone like saul then surely the grace of god could save someone like me to where paul would say my prayer is that in the future as long as i live that christ might display his immense patience if god's patient with me he'll be patient with you as an example for anyone who would believe in him so that they might receive eternal life what was on paul's heart was that his story his testimony would not point to his own glory but that they would point to the grace the mercy the faith the love of christ jesus so that all who believe would know that they have experienced the eternal life that begins in this life now that paul was living in so that he could truly say the grace of god is overflowing in my life through blessing through favor and through his appointing me to his service i read a story this week about a pastor from long ago who said you know when whenever i started to feel like my heart was growing cold in ministry I felt a little bit numb to the message that I was preaching. I felt a little bit tired of the people I was ministered to, and and ministry just for me wasn't bringing joy. He said, I'd always stop, and I would look back over the entire expanse of my life, and I would take stock of how great a sinner I've been, and how much forgiveness that I have received from our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said it was almost instantly when I would take stock of of just how much forgiveness God has given to me that all of a sudden that joy would be restored and I couldn't wait to tell others that they could experience that forgiveness too. And that pastor said even further, it became that when every single Sunday I would walk up the stairs to the pulpit, I would pause for just a moment and I would remember just how many great sins God had forgiven me. And every single morning when I walked up to the pulpit with that attitude, I couldn't wait to preach to others that that forgiveness was available for them. You know, I can tell you as a pastor, I understand that sentiment. I experience that often, not only when I come here on Sunday mornings, but even during the week, church family, when I walk into this building. There are so many times where I stop and I say, I am so thankful to be here. I love being your pastor. I feel so honored that God has given me responsibility to minister in a church like this. Yet I also know my own sins and shortcomings. I know how much grace I have received. And I don't want to just be a grace receiver. I want to be one who makes clear that that grace that's been given to me is a grace that I long to show to others and to share to others. And I pray is displayed in my own life. I too have received grace that has been poured out and is overflowing in my life. And I live in that grace daily as a pastor. And I constantly remind myself of it. This is a part of my testimony. And I ask you today, what is yours? What is your story? Who is Christ Jesus to you? What is your testimony about Jesus? Are you like me? And are you able to say, if Christ can save someone like me, I promise you, he can do the same for you because it's through his strength it's through his power it is through his sacrifice on the cross that forgiveness is available we can't manufacture this on our own but paul says i was shown mercy that hopefully prayerfully others will see an example of what christ can do for them as well
Paul doesn't finish this text, however, only with talking about the present, the past, and the future. He finishes in verse 17 with this incredible doxology where he talks about the forever. And he says, listen, I've been telling you about things that have been true in my own life, but now let me just conclude not making it about me, but making it about him by telling you things that have always been true and will always be true. He is our king eternal. Now to the king eternal, he who is uncreated, not bound by time and space, never ending. To the king immortal, who is not perishable, not subject to corruption or failure or decline or decay or death. To the king invisible, who is unseen, who is incomprehensible, and to the only God, as opposed to the many gods that others worship, and the many idols at which many people still worship today, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Let me hear you say it. Amen. Amen. Today, you have an opportunity right here in this moment as we move to our time of invitation and response you have an opportunity in this moment to surrender your life to the king eternal who is like no other king he is the king of kings to give your all to sign the blank check to say to the lord today i surrender i surrender all to you the bible says that jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever which means that not only is he the king eternal immortal invisible the only god to whom there should only be glory and honor forever and ever he also is in control of your past your present and your future and there is nothing nothing that escapes his sight or his will you can trust him with your all today will you surrender you're all to Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the many ways that you reveal who you are to us, how much you love us. And we thank you for the scriptures that, that make it so clear. We couldn't make it any clearer today. You, Lord, have given your all for us so that we might surrender our all to you. I pray today, Lord, that you, as we have lifted up your name, would draw people to yourself that they would lay down their life and surrender. Today, if they need to repent, to turn away from, from the path of sin they've been on, Lord, if they need that transformation, that turning point in their life, Lord, today, would, would you bring that this very day? Lord, call them, draw them to you, and lead them in the everlasting way. In Jesus' name, amen.